we would, this morning as we remember the cross, as we think about your death and preparation for us celebrating your resurrection, that today we would have a new understanding of what is ours now because you lived, you died, and in that death we have been forgiven. And so, Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit wants to say to us this morning, we ask this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Grab your Bibles if you got them and go with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, as you're turning there, let me tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, I got to go to a Dallas Mavericks game with a few friends, a few staff members, there's like 15, 18 of us. So we went to the Dallas Mavericks game, and uh, I was so excited about it. I love going uh, to any basketball game, specifically professional games. And But when I go to those games, I don't sit in the good seats. I sit in the cheap seats. I mean, I'm sitting in the nosebleed sections uh, when I go. But I love it because the environment's crazy. It was a great matchup. We were playing Toronto Raptors. That was when uh, they were kind of at their apex for their championships. It was going to be a great night. And so we're up there, and, and around the first quarter, beginning of the first quarter, uh, three of us, we received a text. And this text came from a mutual friend. And this mutual friend's name is David. And David is the chaplain of the Dallas Mavericks. And he says, hey, here you guys are here. Uh, do you guys want better seats? And of course we were like, yes, we do. And uh, so he says, come on down here. And so we didn't realize where we were gonna sit, but because he's the chaplain of the Dallas Mavericks, he sits where all of the family sits during the game. So when we get down there, the, you know, the goal is right here. We're sitting like this back row of this section right here. We get down close to that. As you know, if you've gone to any of those events, you have to have your ticket and you gotta verify that you belong in the section you're trying to get into, right? And they'll politely ask you to leave the premises if you argue with them, right? So we get there and so we're getting there. We don't have the tickets. We don't have what's needed to say we belong here. But here's what David said. When you get there and the usher asks you for your ticket, say to them, we're with David. And I'm like, okay, let's just see if this works. We get there, the usher says, uh, let us see your ticket. Uh, we don't have a ticket, uh, but we're with David. And about that time, the usher knew exactly who David was, turns and looks at David. David looks and waves us in. And we're like, here we go, all right? So we get down, we're close enough to the court, we can actually smell the sweat from the players. It was amazing. So we get there and we're, we're, food's coming by, they're giving us food. Mark Cuban's sitting over here and, and we're just having the time of our life. And then David looks at us, uh, right after, well, right after halftime, the team comes back out of the locker room and they're back doing the pregame. David looks over and says, hey, do y'all wanna go to the locker room? And we're like, again, moron, yes, we wanna go to the locker room. So we get up and we're making our way, not out, but down. So now we're on the court. Dirk is right here, Luke is right here. I mean, this is incredible. And we're walking past them, giving them high fives as we go, go there. And then there's all this security and ushers and our job was to stay close to David. And as David's going by, he's going, hey, they're with me. Hey, they're with me. Hey, they're with me. And we're walking in. And I didn't realize this, but like underneath the arena, there's a whole nother arena. Like there's all kinds of things happening under there. One of the places that we went, there was this big, huge room and there was all this food in this room. And, um, and the, I said, what is that for? And they said, oh, you want some food? We're like, oh yeah, we want some food. And he said, this is for the family of the players and the friends of the players. 
And now, no, no, I am not a family of anyone, and I'm not a, really a friend of anyone other than David, but because I'm a friend of David, now I'm a part of the family and the friends of the Maverick organization. So we're able to go in, and we're eating. Then he goes, hey, Donnie Nelson comes by and says, hey, do y'all want to see the locker room? And we're like, hello, yes, we do. So we walk into the locker room. I mean, they're, all of their stuff's in there. I'm sitting in, in Dirk's locker room. There's Lucas over there. And it is incredibly, that, that, that locker room, by the way, it it smells so bad, but it was the sweetest stinky smell I've ever had. It was amazing. So here we are in this moment. We have access to a place that we don't belong because we know someone who does. And because we're with him, we get access to something and to a place that we would not be able to have access to in and of ourselves. What I want to do this morning is I want us to finish up our series that we've been in called His Presence. And today we're going to talk about His Presence, Our Access. His Presence, Our Access. And what I want to see this morning is how the death of Jesus gives us access to a place that we don't belong to in and of ourselves. And so uh, Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to be. If you're there, say the Bible is true. We're going to jump into verse 33. A lot has happened leading up to verse 33. Jesus has been betrayed by his friends, arrested. He has had a, a, a false trial. He has now been convicted. He has been condemned to be crucified. He has been beaten. He has been whipped. He has been mocked. He has been spit upon. Crown of thorns have been placed upon his brow. A cross has been carried up to Golgotha. And now he has been pierced and crucified. And these are the moments just before his death. Listen to what Mark records. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's like noon here until 3 p.m. So from the ninth hour to the sixth hour, and then it says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Uh, they misunderstood him. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, uh, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Verse 37, listen to what it says. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, verse 38 is where we're going to hang our hat this morning. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now here's what I want to do this morning. I want to suggest to you that this short and seemingly unimportant verse might just be the most significant summary of what Jesus' death has caused for us and has created for us as any other summary we might find in the Bible is that when the Bible records, Mark records this, this little detail about the death of Jesus, and most of us, we don't have this verse memorized. We haven't highlighted it in our Bible. It's just another little historical fact as we read through the story. We give no attention to it, and it's this summary that helps us understand the beauty of what Jesus' death has accomplished for us. Now, let me give you the backdrop of this curtain that was torn of why that's so significant. In uh, Jesus' day, the, the temple uh, was the centerpiece of Jewish life. It is even today, the, the temple is significant. But in Jesus' particular day, the, 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 the temple that Herod, that Herod built there uh, was the temple where God would meet with his people. That God would meet with his people. So what made God's people distinct is that his manifest presence would dwell among them, and he would dwell among them in the temple. 
And so the temple was all about engaging and experiencing the manifest presence of God. But that experience was limited, and here's how it was limited. That the temple was made up of several different courts, and so each court was a place that you could go and you could get to the presence of God. And as you moved within the, the, the temple areas and the various courts, it was more and more restrictive. So you had larger courts and then smaller courts and even smaller courts, and this was what this was, was there was limited access in, the, in your proximity to the manifest presence of God, which we'll talk about in a moment, was determined by who you were. Some people had more access than others. But the two most significant places within the temple were this. It was one was called the holy place and the other was called the most holy place. The holy place, or maybe some of us would understand it as the holy of holies. So the holy place was significant because only the priest could go there and here's what they would do. Two times a day, they would burn these incense. They would light this incense that would be uh, an act of worship to the Lord. And what was this incense about? This was the incense of prayer. And so as people gathered to the temple, the temple, according to Jesus, was supposed to be a house of what? A house of prayer, right? And that's why Jesus turns over the tables because they made it into something it wasn't supposed to be. He says, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. And so in the, 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 the holy place, they would light this incense and this incense represented the prayers of the people that were a fragrant aroma to the nostrils of God, going up as an act of worship to the Lord. But only the priest could go in there. And then you had the most sacred place, which was the holy of holies. This was the place that was restricted to one person one time a year. You see, the Holy of Holies was the most holy place because this is where the manifest presence of God dwelled. God's glory, the Ark of the Covenant was there and God's glory dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And so while everyone wanted to draw near to the manifest presence of God, there was limitations of how close you could get and that most sacred place was limited to one person one time a year, the high priest could go in on in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one time a year. They could enter in, and here's what they would do. They would prepare themselves and offer sacrifices, and then they would enter in, the high priest, and offer a sacrifice to atone the sins of the people for the year. So this most sacred place, the place that the human heart longs for, the manifest presence of God, there was limited access. In the very heart of God's presence, only one person, one time a year. Now, what separated the holy of holies from the most holy place? What kept humanity out of the holy of holies? And here's what it was. It was a curtain. That in the temple, there was this massive curtain. We think of curtain. We think of like stage curtain. Okay, I peek out from behind the curtain, and there I am. We're not talking about a small curtain. History tells us that this curtain that was there in the temple that separated humanity from the manifest presence of God was four inches thick, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. So when you think of like, like curtain or veil, think like this is a massive, immovable barrier that restricted access to the presence of God. It was not meant to be something easy that you can pass through. It was meant something to represent, and this is what it represented. It represented the fact that humanity can come this close to God, but no closer. 
that what humanity longed for is the manifest presence of God. To walk in his glory, we are restricted. And here's truth number one that I want us to see if we're gonna understand the beauty of the cross. And here's truth number one. Write this down if you're taking notes. We need to see that sin creates a barrier between us and God. Sin creates a barrier between us and God. You see, our sin, oftentimes we make it a small thing. We minimize what sin is. Oh yeah, I just do something that offends God. Now understand something. We were created to, to live and exist in a relationship with our creator. That our life was supposed to be found in his presence. That we were created fundamentally, listen, this was the primary purpose, to know God and enjoy God and experience a relationship living in fellowship with him. But when sin entered the equation, a barrier was created, and here's why. God is holy, and he cannot be in relationship with sinful humanity. He longs for relationship, we long for relationship, but because he's holy and we're unholy, this sin creates a barrier. And I would say to you, the greatest devastation that sin has created on planet Earth is that. This week, we watched a horrific tragedy in Tennessee. We saw children and adults murdered in an act of rage and an act of violence. And I don't know about you, I, I hear the story and I'm watching this and my gut is just turned upside down because I'm going, man, why does it have to be this way? Like the pain that, that, that these families are going through and this, this community is going through. And the answer is simple, sin creates that. This is a broken world where sin is real. But I wanna to say to you, when we think about the most horrific events like we saw last week, the pain of sin that's so real, I wanna tell you, the greatest wound that sin has caused is not just the violence and the, and the social unrest and all of the injustice that we see around us. The greatest pain that sin has caused is separation between man and God. Because the depth of man's soul longs for this. This is why we chase so many things. This is why we live for success and we live for things in this life that we think somehow it will give me satisfaction of the soul. We pursue relationships hoping that we find what we're looking for only for us to pursue and to get and to come up to the conclusion that it's not enough. Why? Because we were created for the presence of God and sin has created a barrier that keeps us, that separates us from his presence. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about this. I love the way he summarizes this. He says, sin has made a great gulf between man and God, a deep valley of infinite width and depth, which we are powerless to bridge. No human foot can traverse it. No mortal wings can fly across it. Sin has created this vast and terrible abyss separating us from our creator and leaving us stranded in the wilderness of our rebellion. And that is what this veil or this curtain in the temple represented. That we had to stay out of God's presence, that our sin prohibits us from entering into God's presence. And here's how serious it is, is that there's no amount of religion you can perform. There's no amount of good deeds you can do to tear down the curtain that separates you and God. That what we need is not self-help. What we need is not religion. What we need is the miracle of salvation for God to supernaturally come into our life and do for us what we cannot do ourselves. 
And that's exactly what Jesus does for us on the cross. Here's truth number two. Truth number one, sin creates a barrier between us and God. But truth number two is beautiful. Jesus' death has removed the barrier of sin. Anybody thankful for that? That Jesus' death has removed the barrier of sin. I want to show you this in verse 38. Look what he says here. He says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now notice the details that Mark gives. From what? From what? From, say it with conviction, from. Now why is that so significant? You see, here's what religion does. Religion is man's attempt to tear the curtain of the barrier between us and God from bottom to top. Religion and good works and our good deeds and the things that we try to do to change our life and fix our life and be a better version of ourselves, here's what that's doing. That is a recognition that there's a barrier between us and God and we're at the bottom of the curtain trying to tear this thing in two. And there is nothing we can do in our human effort, there's no amount of religion or good works we can do to tear the curtain from bottom to top. But here is what Mark wants us to realize, that when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross for our sin, it wasn't humanity that tore the curtain in two from bottom to top, it was the finger of God reaching down and saying, now the way is, is, is open. The barrier is removed from top to bottom. It was the hand of God, not the hand of man. You see, here's why that's so significant. You see, we, we, we so miss the cross. I think I have most of my life. So when we refer to the cross, we go, well, what is the cross? Well, the cross is the place where Jesus died. Now, is that true? Yeah. But is that all that there is? Because if it's just a place where Jesus died, a lot of people died on crosses. Like history tells us, we don't even have the count of the number of people that died on Roman crosses. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, there were two thieves that died along with Jesus. What was the difference between their death and his death? If it's just a death on a cross, then why not have access to them? You see, we've got to understand there was more happening in this moment than just an ordinary man dying on an ordinary cross. What we have to understand is that what we're seeing here is the picture of the ultimate sacrifice. You see, we have the Holy of Holies in the temple and I mentioned earlier that on, on one day a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And here's what they would do. It was the Day of Atonement. They would offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. They would offer the sacrifice of the perfect spotless lamb. And this spotless lamb would be laid on the altar and its blood would be shed. And this would be God's temporary grace. It would be a temporary atonement that would cover the sins of the people for the year. But here's what you need to know about the sacrifice. It was insufficient. Now, how do we know it was insufficient? Because it had to be offered on repeat every year, the same ceremony. Our sins are here. Our sins haven't gone away. They've not been fully dealt with. But God in his grace and mercy would delay his wrath by letting the blood of an animal be a temporary atonement for the sin that we've committed. But here's what happens on the cross. We're not seeing just an ordinary man dying an ordinary death on an ordinary cross. What we're seeing is the precious, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, God in flesh, the perfect one, the one, the Bible says, who knew no sin. He was going to the cross as the final sacrifice so that in his death, here's what happens. The sin of humanity was transferred onto Jesus. 
And Jesus in his death was the final atonement, the final sacrifice, finally something sufficient to quench the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. And here's what's happening on the cross. The perfect spotless lamb of God, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, did not just pay for sin, he became sin. you let that sink in, the perfect one who never knew sin became sin. In this moment, Jesus became every rapist, every lie was his. Every act of rage fell upon him. Every violent act ever done, every act of injustice, every murder that's ever been committed, every act of racism, Jesus became that sin. And what took place on the cross is Jesus received that sin as if he was the guilty one the judgment and the wrath of God that we deserved was transferred to Jesus. And the full weight of God's judgment and the execution of God's justice on sinful humanity that it would take in you and I an eternity in hell to pay for. Jesus received in himself. And you see this in the text Mark is giving us imagery that shows us the magnitude of what's happening here. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, he gives us this picture. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What is this darkness about? So some people will look at this and go, okay, that was the darkness because of what they were doing to Jesus. No, this was the darkness was a picture of God's judgment that was coming for Jesus. This was the wrath of God. The darkness wasn't there because of the Roman soldiers. The darkness was there because Jesus was receiving the full weight of God's wrath. His judgment was crashing down on his one and only son. The judgment that you deserve and the judgment that I deserved. This is why Jesus says what he says in verse 34. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus cry this out? And here's why. For the first time in eternity, the eternal Son of God has been separated from the Father. The sin barrier that separates us from God on the cross momentarily when the wrath of God was being poured upon Jesus, Jesus went through the separation. For the first time, God turned his back on his son. Why? Because he was receiving the judgment and wrath of our sin as if he was the sinner. And so Jesus cries out in this moment because he's feeling something he's never felt in all eternity. And that is the father is gone And he cries out as he receives the verdict of guilty he 
even though he was innocent. This is not an ordinary man dying on an ordinary cross, dying an ordinary death. And then it says he breathes his last. And just before he breathed his last, he made one more declaration. Mark only records that he cried out with a loud voice. But John, the gospel writer, tells us what he said. The very final words of Jesus as he's there, separated from the Father, remembering what he's there to do, he makes this declaration, it is finished. Paid in full. The wrath of God satisfied all of the judgment, all of the penalty, all of the consequence of the sin of humanity has now been fully received in Jesus Christ. And he makes the declaration, paid in full. Is anybody thankful for that today? That this is what Christ has done. It is finished. And the scripture tells us that the moment Jesus breathes his last, how do we know it's finished? The barrier that separates humanity from the presence of God is torn from top to bottom. Removing the barrier altogether. This is what J.I. Packer says about this. This is beautiful. He says, the gospel is this. We are great sinners and Christ is a great savior. The cross of Christ is central to the gospel. There, divine wrath and divine mercy are both displayed in all of their majesty. The wrath shows us the enormity of our sin and the mercy shows us the measure of God's love. The cross reconciles us to God because it satisfies God's justice and demonstrates his love, thereby, watch this, removing the barrier that sin has created between us and him. I say it like this, on the cross, the justice of God and the grace of God kiss. Because the justice of God is met by the wrath of God being poured upon Jesus. And that's a wrath that we deserve. And because it was poured out upon Jesus and not us, grace is seen and grace and justice, they meet and they embrace. That's the beautiful wisdom and the great love of God. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? So sin creates a barrier between us and God, but Jesus' death... It, it destroys the barrier. It tears down the barrier that separates. So what does that mean for us? Watch this third truth. Write this down. In Jesus, we have access into the manifest presence of God. That is what the, the, the curtain being torn is the, from top to bottom, God is saying, I'm opening up access now. No longer is there a barrier between you and me. You now in Christ can come into my presence and I talked about this last week, and this is something I think we miss far too often. Many of us believe that our salvation is fundamentally and primarily about us being forgiven so we can escape hell. But I wanna submit to you what Mark is showing us here is something greater than that, that the primary and fundamental reason of our salvation with purpose of what God has done for us in Christ is not about forgiving us so we can escape something, it's about forgiving us so we can experience something. 
that we have been redeemed not to escape a terrible place, but to enter into and experience a relationship with an incredible person to know him and experience him and to fellowship with him and this desire that is in all of us that we were created with to know our creator in Christ, we now have access to experience the very reason we were created. Much of the chaos in our culture today is this. Humanity doesn't know not only who they are, humanity doesn't understand why they are. And I'm gonna tell you, when you understand why you exist, you'll begin to understand who you are because what'll happen is, is that you'll discover that it, it's, in, it's in Christ that you have access. You, why you are is to experience God's presence. And when you understand Jesus is the access, you find a new identity that's rooted in him. This is what we were created for. And I love what the writer of Hebrews does. He, the writer of Hebrews gives us some commentary on this whole curtain being torn scene that we find in Mark. I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have, I love this, confidence to enter the holy places. Now, everyone reading this in, in this particular day would have understood the holy places are what? The holy place and the holy of holies, the holy place and the most holy place. This would have been a reference to the temple where God's manifest presence would be. And so before you, you entered in with fear and trepidation and knowing I don't have full access, he's saying now because of Christ, we now can enter confidently into this place that we used to not belong, now we do, how? Watch this, by the blood of Jesus. See, the access that we have, that we have confidence, we are not getting access because of who we are, of what we've done, or by our own religious efforts. Our access with confidence into the presence of God is only by the blood of Jesus. Now look what he says in verse 20. By a new and living way that he opened, it was torn from top to bottom, that he opened for us through the what? Through the curtain, there's a reference of the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, I want you to watch something. I think it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews is showing us something. He's showing us that the first curtain was torn, giving us access, but now there is a new curtain. See, the first curtain was a barrier that restricted our access to a relationship with God. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there is a new curtain that is put in place. And this curtain does not exist to be a barrier between us and God, but rather to be a door giving us access into his presence. And listen, that, curse, that new curtain has a name, and the name of that new curtain is Jesus. See, the writer is telling us that there is a new curtain, and that curtain is Jesus. But this time, he is not a veil keeping us from the presence of God. He now becomes an entryway into the presence of God. And so just as the, as the high priest once a year would have to pass through the veil to get into the presence of God, now every person at any moment who calls upon the name of the Lord now through Jesus has access into the very presence of God. It used to be a barrier restricting access. And now, listen to this, it is a gateway inviting us in. It is through Jesus that we enter into the presence of God. By the way, do you know that's why we pray in Jesus' name? You ever thought about that? All right, how many of you confess? This is a good place to confess, all right? Um, 
How many of you ever pray and you in your prayer in Jesus' name? But before you raise your hand, but you often do that without even thinking about in Jesus' name. Raise your hand if it's you. All right. Some of you need to confess in a minute. You're lying. All right. So we do this often, right? We, we act like it's a salutation to end our prayers. Like, I don't know how to off-ramp the prayer. Oh, in Jesus' name, amen, right? That's not what it is. It's not a salutation. When we pray in Jesus' name, here's what we're doing. What we're saying is, God, I'm recognizing that the access that I have into your presence to commune with you, to worship you, to call on your name, to bring my petitions before you, God, I'm acknowledging I have no rights in of myself. I am coming to you through Jesus Christ and him alone. This is what Christ has secured for us. And I love what, what the writer of Hebrews says earlier in chapter four, verse 16, let, look what he says here. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He's saying because the sin barrier has been removed, giving us now access into the presence of God, here's what we can do. We can with confidence walk into the presence of God with expectant hearts, knowing that everything we need, we find in his presence. One of the things that was in the Holy of Holies in the temple, um, among another, a number of things, was what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The, the picture of this is that in God's presence is where we find mercy, where we find grace, we find hope, we find life. You know what the writer of Hebrews says? Hey, you know that sin barrier that separated you from God? Jesus' death on the cross, he tore down the barrier. And now you have access Under the old system, the law was saying, keep out. And now the voice of Jesus says, come in. Come on in. The writer of Hebrews says, well, here's what you're gonna find. When you go confidently into the throne of grace, you're gonna find whatever you need in just the right moment that you need it. Because in the presence of God, we find everything we need in life. Jim Cimbala really, I think, captures the essence of this in one of his books, and this is what he writes. I want you to listen to this. The tearing of the curtain in the temple was not just a physical event, but a spiritual one. It represented the tearing down of the walls that separated us from God and the opening of a new way of life, one based on faith in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to live in darkness and despair, but we can walk in the light of his love and grace. The curtain was torn and we are now invited into the very presence of God where we can find forgiveness, healing, and hope for the future. Anybody thankful for that? So what we're gonna do in the next few moments is a very sacred thing. Our uh, deacons in a few moments are gonna pass the plate 
of communion. We're going to take of the bread and we're going to take of the cup. The Lord's Supper is just symbolic of everything that I preach today. So when we take of the bread, here's what we're doing. We're remembering the broken body of Jesus. When we take of the cup, we're remembering the blood that was shed. So this is a remembrance. So that's what we're going to do in a few moments. We're going to have a time of preparation, and then we're going to have a time of remembrance. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember. Watch this. We take of the bread. We take of the cup. Here's what we're remembering. My sin created a barrier between me and God. But Jesus' death and resurrection has torn down that barrier. And now I have access into the presence of God, but it's only through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And we're just going to remember that today. But it's important that we prepare ourselves. How do we prepare ourselves? It's really two ways I'm going to challenge you with. First of all is you got to know that you belong to him. If Lord's Supper is a moment of remembrance and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior or you're not certain that you have, then you're not, you're not doing this in remembrance because you're remembering the fact that you've received it. And if you're not certain you've received it, then you can't remember it. You with me? And so in preparation, for some of you, you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. For some of you, you're like, yes, okay, I I know Jesus, like I've trusted Jesus and, and I'm a good person. And here's the problem with that mentality. It's the I know Jesus and I'm a good person. The and nullifies the first. Because if you're putting your hope and trust in anything other than Jesus, then you're not putting your trust fully in Jesus, which means you don't belong to him. Or you say this, okay, I, I, I know Jesus, I know the gospel, I believe in all of that, you know, and, and I know I need to trust Jesus, but, but I'm a good person. I was raised in church, and man, I know that I'm not, as, I'm not where I need to be, but I know I'm not. All of the buts that you put into that, listen, that is a declaration that you're putting your hope and trust in something other than Jesus. Your access into the presence of God cannot be and or but these things. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. And there are some of you, you're uncertain about that. And let me show you the seriousness of this. Go back to my story with the Dallas Mavericks. So what did I tell you we did? We walked down and how did we gain access to our seats? They asked the questions like, like where's your ticket? So we don't have a ticket, but we're with David. And then David, David weighs us in and we go and we go backstage and wherever David went, we had access. Why? Because we're with David. Now imagine for a moment a scenario that let's say that I got separated from the, the group and David is somewhere else across the room and I'm just walking around and one of the security guards or the ushers sees me and they're like, okay, hey, who is this cat? He didn't have the badge. He didn't have the right. We've never seen him before. Like, hey, who are you? Now imagine for a moment my response is, oh, I'm Todd. I'm a pastor out of East Texas. The next statement would be security. Because my name means nothing to them. Where I work means nothing to them. Like get him out, he has no access. Or what I did say is this, hey, who are you? It doesn't matter who I am, what matters is who I'm with. My name doesn't matter, I'm gonna tell you who I am. I'm a friend of David. So imagine in that scenario, the usher says, who are you? Uh, who I am is not important. Uh, I'm just Todd, but I'm a friend of David. Now all of a sudden they go, okay, we know David. And they yell across the room, hey, David, 
Is he a friend of yours? And David's like, yes, he's a friend of mine. And now they're going, hey, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? Is there anything else you wanna see? We're glad you're here. The whole conversation changes. But in that moment, if David doesn't recognize me and he looks over and he goes, no, I don't know who that is. Security. So the most important part in that whole scenario is not that I know David. It's that David knows me. There's a lot of you that know about Jesus and you're trusting in a lot of other things and really your life is about who you are or about the things that you know. But according to Matthew 7, there's a day coming where Jesus is gonna, we're gonna be judged and there are many on that day, according to Jesus himself, will begin to, when they're asked who they are, who gave them access, they're gonna to begin to give their resume. Oh yeah, I, I used to cast out demons for Jesus. I used to go to mission trip for Jesus. I used to do all these things for Jesus. And then they're gonna go, hey Jesus, do you know this person? And if Jesus' response is yes, Yes, they're one of my friends. They're one of mine. They belong to me. It's me like, yes, then you get to enjoy everything that Jesus gets to enjoy, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And it's not just about you knowing him. It's about him knowing you. But there are others on that day that are gonna hear these words. No, I don't know who they are. And Jesus says, and in that day, you might know him, but if he doesn't know you, you'll be cast out. So which scenario are you? Are you a person that knows Jesus and it's better known by Jesus? Because that's the access. It's through submitting your life once and for all. Stop trusting in yourself and your religion and losing all sense of pride and just trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or are you someone who's putting more stock in yourself? Which are you? Will you hear, yeah, He's a friend, she's a friend. Or the word's gonna be, man, I never knew you. So in a moment, we stand and respond. If you're uncertain about that, we had a guy at eight o'clock service, a friend of mine, I've known him since he was a teenager, came to me, gave me a big old bear hug and said, I gotta trust Jesus now. Gave his life to Christ, baptized him. The same thing can happen for you. We're gonna have decision encouragers available. Leave your seat in a moment. Come and take their hand and say, I need to know Jesus. I'm not certain if I have access. And then for those of you who do, here's what you're gonna do. This is gonna be a place of brokenness, kneeling at your seat, kneeling at this altar, getting before the Lord, a place of brokenness. We don't wanna take of the bread or the cup without dealing with sin in our life. We, we, we bring contempt upon the, the, the body and blood of Jesus. We, we make it a joke and a mockery. What does that look like? That means that you right any wrong. You confess every sin and right every wrong. One of the scripture verses we're looking at right now with our Bible reading plan is this idea of if you are at the altar and you remember that you have an unreconciled relationship, don't, don't worship, go reconcile the relationship and then come. For some of you, it's coming to the altar and, and kneeling down and calling upon the name of the Lord. Others of you, it's walking across the room or grabbing the hand of the one next to you saying, hey, I need to reconcile this because I can't take of the Lord's table with this friction. It's repentance. So we're gonna have this time of brokenness where I'm gonna invite you to come and kneel, to kneel at your seat, whatever that looks like for you. So I'm gonna ask you to reverently stand right now. Reverently stand, bow your heads as you're standing. I'm gonna pray, when I say amen, this altar is gonna be open. If you are uncertain of your relationship with Jesus, come and receive him today. If you need to prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper, which all of us do, 
this is your opportunity. Jesus, we give this time to you. We devote this to you. Lord, we ask that your spirit move in this place. Save those who need to be saved. Reconcile those who need to be reconciled. God, uh, bring repentance and brokenness to those in the room who need to be broken. So God, we give this time to you. We thank you for the cross that gives us the access of what we're about to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
still just preparing our hearts for this. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm just compelled to do this. I want to just very reverently with every head bowed and every eye closed. I just sense there are some of you in this room right now and you need to give your life to Jesus and you, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, but there is this sense of resistance. It's either uncertainty about your relationship with Jesus or you know, like, I need to trust him as my Lord and Savior. With no one looking around, I'm gonna ask you to, to do me a favor. I wanna tell you this. If I'm speaking to you, you know who you are. I'm gonna say nothing is more important in this moment in your life than being known by Jesus. And any fear that might keep you at your seat, that might cause you to want to get out of the situation thinking maybe that's going to bring relief, I'm going to tell you right now. Resist that and surrender. So right now, with no one looking around, every head bowed, if that is you, you're saying, Pastor, you're speaking to me. Like, I need Jesus in my life. I know it, and I've, I've, I've sensed the Holy Spirit telling me that. This takes courage. I'm going to ask you just to slip out of your seat right now and find the decision encourager nearest you. Find one of the adults that are standing in the aisle right now and just slip out and come and say, Pastor's talking to me. i got to get this settled today. Right now. God for obedience. Anyone else? Praise God. Anyone else? God for obedience. Anyone else? I'm not trying to coerce you. I just want to give you space because I know this is a big deal.
Father, I thank you for the obedience, God. So many, Lord, and I know there are others that haven't stepped out. And I pray you would give them courage. Let your Holy Spirit give them courage to say yes to you. in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Be seated. As we take of the Lord's Supper this morning, our men are going to come forward and our deacons are going to serve and get in position. And as they come, I just want you to remember what we're doing. The bread and the cup. We're remembering sin's barrier. Jesus removes the barrier. We now have access. And so as this plates are passed and you receive the bread. I want you to think about the sermon. Think about what Christ has done and receive it and remember what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Jesus Messiah the name of
that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. And during that ceremony, Jesus turned it on its head and began to explain that this was now being fulfilled in him. And he took the bread and he broke it, passed it to his disciples, and he said, this bread represents my body that will be broken for you. I want you, and then he calls the church. We've done this ever since. He says, I want you to take the bread and I want you to break it. And I want you to remember me. So let's take this moment, take this bread, remember the broken body of Jesus. Scripture tells us that you were wounded for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon you, and by your wounds, we are healed. Father, I pray that as we remember the broken body, that there would be a deepening of our love for you. Thank you for receiving our sin upon yourself so that we might be free and forgiven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Oh, 
same way Jesus took the bread and he broke it and passed it they took the cup and Jesus said to them that this cup is now going to be representative represent rather my blood that is shed for you and then he gives us instructions to his believers his followers I want you to stop every now and then and drink it and I want you to remember the scripture tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and God thank you that you being so loving and gracious you sent Jesus Christ to live the life we couldn't have lived to die the death we should have died so that his blood might be spilled so that we might be forgiven thank you that he received in himself the punishment that we deserved that now because we have been washed in your blood those who have trusted in you Lord we have been your, your, your blood has covered our sin. We now have confidence to enter into your presence. Lord, let us do that now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Just very reverently, I want you to stand to your feet. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship just for a moment. We're going to sing a song about the love of God, the reckless love of God. What is that, that song about? It's, it's the picture of the prodigal son. You know, the word prodigal means reckless. And if you know the story of the prodigal son, it's a, it's a son that abandoned the father and that went and lived a life that just destroyed the family name and offended the father. And the father should have wrote him off, but because of the love of the father, the father never gave up on the son. And you understand the story. The story is really not about the reckless behavior of the son. It's about the reckless love of the father who never gave up on him. 
And so as we think about the bread and the body of, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, that is demonstration of, of the, the reckless love of God who pursues us in our sin, who chases us, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. And so what I wanna challenge you with for the next few moments is let's sing this song as people with conviction. Let's sing this song like people who believe that Jesus' love is enough and that his love pursues us, the worst part of us, and loves us and chases us down until he, he makes us his own. So I'm gonna encourage you, listen, go to a new place of worship, close your eyes, raise your hands, whatever that looks like for you, and let's declare the love of Jesus in this place. Father, we give this time to you. I pray that your worship, Lord, songs will be lifted to you. In Jesus' name.
coming after me. Let's praise him for that church. Come on. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up. Coming after me. There's no demonstrating your love in such a way that we will never fully comprehend what kind of love you have given to us. But Lord, our response is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that we are, all that we have. God, we love you in return. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you are alive today, that we can worship you and you hear us and we can pray to you and you hear us. Thank you for this morning, for all that you have done and all you are going to continue to do. We celebrate that today. And we celebrate you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. Go ahead and be seated. We're almost finished with our service today, but we don't want to leave without celebrating some life change. So we have a few that have come forward for baptism. Let's turn our attention that direction. This is an absolute um, joy um, this morning. I get to baptize along with my wife, uh, our youngest, Micah. Uh, We're so excited, yeah. I'm so proud of this young lady. God moved in her heart. It's last several months, I'll I'll read her story, but I've been working on her heart. And then during our time of revival when God was just moving, the Lord just solidified in her heart what she needed to do. And so let me share her story. When I was six, Jesus started working in my heart and I knew I wanted to know him. But since then, I have doubted my faith because I didn't fully remember my experience. This past month, I've been really struggling with it and wanted to talk about it. So a few weeks ago after church, I talked to my mom and dad about it and decided I didn't want to doubt anymore. And I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Mike, I just want to tell you how proud we are of you and that this is the best decision you'll ever make and that 
this is something we've been praying for for you even before you were born, that you would come to that realization. And I remember one of the things you said to us that day, you just said, I just want Jesus to be the boss of my life. And um, this, this baptism moment is a declaration of saying, Jesus, you're my Lord, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. So Micah, can I ask you, is Jesus Christ your Lord? It's because of that profession of faith that your mom gets to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. What an unbelievable testimony.